welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hello, and welcome back to the Irish Passport podcast, where today we'll be discussing the knowledge gap about Ireland and Northern Ireland in the UK. Uh, But first, Naomi, as usual, we've chosen a listener question to answer, and this one is great because it's really topical this week. So Monique from Hastings sent us this message via Facebook. What do you think about the Republic of Ireland's new Taoiseach? Leo Varadkar. Hi Monique. Yeah, this one has definitely made headlines around the world this week. Uh, So the Taoiseach of Ireland, uh, you might remember, is the equivalent of Prime Minister, right? Taoiseach is is an Irish word. It means chief, so in this case, uh, chief of state. Yeah, and this is the youngest Taoiseach we've ever had. He's only 38 years old, I believe. So, um, mm. yeah, fair play to him to getting where he is. Yeah, sure. Um, he did, wasn't actually elected by the public. He, he's taking over the job from our former Taoiseach, Enda Kenny. And they both come from the right-leaning Fine Gael party. Uh, Fine Gael, again, an Irish word, which is pretty typical for Irish political parties. Uh, it means tribe of the Gaels. Well, they love their dramatic names, don't they? <laughs> so the main opposition party is Fianna Foyle, which is a soldier of destiny. Yeah, they're, they're all uh, made in the in the 1920s and 30s, so it's all very uh, Game of Thrones in, uh, <laughs> in tone. Yeah. So to answer your question, Monique, so Leo Varadkar was elected in, in a party election because Enda Kenny retired and he replaced him as party leader and was voted in as Taoiseach. I think basically Irish people are in kind of two minds about the international attention this is getting because the headlines all around the world all focus on the fact that Leo Varadkar is gay rather than, you know, the Irish headlines which kind of just treat him as an ordinary politician. Right, and, and we should also mention that Irish people are definitely very proud of this and of the fact that Leo Varadkar is of Indian heritage too. Uh, it was actually a main subject of his acceptance speech. I think we have a clip of that. Will we play that? Go for it. And I think if my election as leader of Fine Gael today has shown anything, it is that prejudice has no hold in this republic. And I know when my father travelled 5,000 miles to build a new home in Ireland, I doubt he ever dreamed that his son would one day grow up to become its leader. And that despite his differences, his son would be treated the same and judged by his actions and character, not his origins or identity. You can tell that that's the clip that, you know, every international reporter would have chosen to, for their coverage. Yeah, sure. Uh, and the Irish Times noticed this in an uh, article that I saw uh, by the journalist Anya McMahon. Who, she just published a full list of the headlines and they're all of this same tone. So Reuters uh, wrote that uh, Ireland elects first gay prime minister Leo Varadkar. Uh, the New York Times reported... Leo Varadkar elected as Ireland's first gay prime minister. And The Guardian tells us, Ireland's first gay prime minister, Leo Varadkar, formerly elected. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, during the marriage equality debates that um, you know people were saying, uh, you know, I don't get gay married, I get married. You know, I don't post a gay letter, I post a letter. And, you know, uh, Leo Varadkar has a right just to be a prime minister in his own right. Yeah, that's true. But I, at the same time, you know, as a journalist, I can completely understand that they are just going to, you know, grab the most newsworthy thing about it. And it mm. is remarkable, um, you know, or it's news to the rest of the world, even if it isn't to Ireland. But I think the the disconnect here is that it's not really a revolution in Ireland, the way that people abroad kind of presume it to be. So Radcar is this kind of well-known and kind of old hat like you know he's been around for a while you know he's fairly well respected and people have been expecting him to become Taoiseach for ages like this whole campaign Mm -hmm. was kind of going on for a very long time Um, and also you know the the reporting does tend to ignore that uh, Varadkar he doesn't have a particularly progressive record although he has Mm -hmm. said that there'll be a referendum Varadkar supported retaining jail sentences for abortion and in general he's pretty firmly economically center-right 
uh, that latter one is one that's particularly controversial at the moment because Ireland is emerging out of some really lean years that followed after the financial crisis and a lot of sectors are crying out for public investment. Uh, Varadkar's opponents actually uh, like to characterise him as a kind of a Tory equivalent, comparing him to the Conservatives in the UK. Uh, so, like you say, Naomi, his appointment is a bit of a mixed bag. It depends on which way you look at it from. And in any event, we do wish the very best to Mr. Varadkar and hope he does well by the country at this crucial time. So, Naomi, let's explain what we mean by the knowledge gap, our subject today. So, I actually spoke to the very charming Harry Cooper, who's a journalist who works for Politico, a magazine that I write for sometimes as well. You know, we were chatting about this and how events in Northern Ireland and Ireland kind of tended to come as a surprise to him. Uh, He never seemed to see them flagged up in the way that he might expect them to be. Why not just let him explain it in his own words? My name's Harry Cooper. I am a reporter based in Brussels at Politico Europe. Uh, I'm from, uh, from Birmingham, but grew up in the Isle of Man. What was your impression of how the recent Northern Ireland election was reported? Um, so this is the snap election that took place to re-elect the uh, Stormont Assembly. Um, it wasn't reported. Honestly, I, I, I was aware that there was a political situation <laughs> um, in, in Northern Ireland uh, related to the mismanagement of some sort of a renewable heat scheme, I think. Um, I, that's because I'm in Brussels that I knew that. In, in the UK... I really was not aware of any coverage. And then on the day, there were these big headlines saying the nationalists have have had this massive resurgence. But for me, I was like, what does that mean? Because I, being being honest, I feel horribly ignorant about about Irish politics. Can you tell me a little bit about what your uh, knowledge on awareness of Northern Ireland was growing up? Um, I I, I, I actually, I heard this... uh, this really interesting phrase on, on the news yesterday, uh, and it was an Indian MP who was talking about the historical amnesia that Brits suffer from in the context of the empire. And I think you can apply that to many different areas. So, for example, um, British people's knowledge of the European Union, or even as we're talking about British people's knowledge of I- Irish politics. I um, really struggle to remember ever being taught about the Troubles, um, about the partition, about what is actually going on in Ireland um, growing up. Um, and, yeah, I always have this slightly... I always feel slightly embarrassed when my Irish friends jokingly, often jokingly will say, um, oh, you um, you awful English person, like, referring to these crimes that England, that the Brits committed in, in Ireland last in the last century. I don't know what those crimes are, um, and of course, now I sort of have a bit more time to sort of read around, but there is not—it's not in in the the, aware, the public awareness um, in in the UK. I'd say I think there's possibly a generational division here because I know that my parents were aware of what was going on in Ireland because of all the attacks, the the terrorist attacks in the eight, the seventies and eighties. Again, I feel like my gen, our generation is, especially in the UK, has really taken for granted a lot of a lot of what we we take to be accepted facts. So, for example. Um, the, the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, I, I don't even think we really acknowledge that that's a debate. In, in, in England, I want to say England as well, because I don't know what the situation is in Wales and Scotland, and I really think there's something very specific about English um, awareness of these issues. Um, I think English people generally don't really have a very strong... We have a very st- bizarre sense of, um, of uh, our nationality, uh, it's kind of this sort of embarrassed pride, almost. I think, especially in the context of Irish politics, which seems to be very... I mean, Irish people are known to be very proud to be Irish. Um, and I think English people are uh, maybe a bit confused about this and don't really understand where this, this, this identity has come from. So I think I, I always have this feeling that English people have this sort of... We're slightly bemused by, by what, what goes on in Ireland. And I don't think we ever... Because we're never really to- told about it... It's kind of, I mean, it goes back centuries. It's centuries of, of, uh, of history that we're talking about. And I don't think anyone really wants to get really beneath the surface, you know? How about here in Brussels? Because we're faced with this prospect of the UK withdrawing as um, a member of the EU and as a voice in the EU. And um, then we, we have Ireland remaining. So is there an awareness among other in this debate in Brussels among other EU countries that there's a distinction between the UK and Ireland or do you think they get conflated here as well? Very good question. Um, honestly, I don't think people realise how sensitive it is. 
I mean, I didn't realise how sensitive it was until quite recently. Um, I did not realise, for example, that part of the Good Friday Agreement, there is this acknowledgement that at some point in the future, if there were a border poll, then that would that would be fine. Like, I, I had honestly did not realise that that was part of, part of this deal. Um, but the problem is that there is so much uncertainty about so many things in the discussions that are about to begin. I don't know that it will necessarily be regarded with as, as a priority issue. I feel like the bill, for example, the amount that the UK will have to pay is likely to be the headline. And given that um, we're starting from a point where knowledge of, uh, knowledge of the European Union and what it actually means is already non-existent in most parts of the UK um, and elsewhere in Europe, it's not just a UK issue, um, I think people will struggle to understand the relevance of Brexit for what's going on in Ireland. Uh, fair play to uh, Harry Cooper for being so honest about this, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was really nice to speak to him about it, actually. I spoke to Siobhan Fenton, who's a freelance journalist uh, who grew up in Belfast. So she told me that she grew up surrounded by the idea that the whole reason that Northern Ireland is part of the UK is because Britain wants it, you know, that it wouldn't relinquish Northern Ireland against the wishes of a significant minority there. When he, she arrived in England, she told me people weren't even aware that Northern Ireland was part of the UK. So mm. this lack of knowledge in this context is all the stranger because it's something that has hugely high stakes. Like there was regular fatal violence over this issue right into the 1990s and there's still regular bomb scares in Northern Ireland you know when when I was uh, reporting for our first episode on the border I had to go a really long way round to get to Clonus because a road was closed due to a bomb scare you know it's mm. it, I mean it's nothing like it used to be of course but that tension and that risk is is very much under the surface and it's something that needs to be treated with care so Siobhan spoke to me about this and about her shock at uh, having to explain things like the the Good Friday Agreement the peace deal uh, that brought an end to much of that violence to journalists. It was definitely when it, whenever I turned up in in England for the first time and I went across for university, I was completely gobsmacked by it because I think that so much, particularly in Belfast, because of the troubles, we're told that and um, that you know the reason why you know, we are in the UK is because uh, Britain wants us so much. And I, I kind of was expecting English people to kind of have this very nationalistic sense of of, of wanting Northern Ireland to, to be part of the UK because at least in some of the communities that I grew up in Northern Ireland, there's a very strong sense that we're in, we're in Britain because Britain wants us. And then when I arrived in, in Britain and found that people just sort of didn't realise at, at all um, that Northern Ireland was in the UK, I was really, really quite quite shocked by that. I, I guess because because of, of this is Northern Ireland was really only ever really in, in the news in, in England, unfortunately, during the troubles because of the nature of the conflict and once the conflict was unfortunately resolved. It's kind of not really been mentioned. Again, there's very little coverage of the peace process through life in Northern Ireland since then. So I think it's a case of kind of being out of sight and, and out of mind. Have you um, encountered any kind of particular examples of, um, you know, lack of knowledge that really took you aback? I did a, an interview with the uh, BBC radio show recently and just before I went on, one of their researchers who's you know, very informed in, in politics and current affairs said to me, oh, so unionists are the Catholics and nationalists are the Protestants, isn't that right, just to check before we go live? And <laughs> you had to do like a kind of 20 second kind of history of, of the, the troubles and kind of cross-community relationships in about 20 seconds before um, the, the show started, which was slightly stressful, but in terms of like uh, Brexit correspondence or political correspondence, it, from the national papers and be like, what is this Good Friday Agreement? What what, what does it mean? You know, how can Brexit impact on it? And it can be quite, quite terrifying in terms of you know, what's such a complicated issue isn't really understood in England very much, unfortunately. And we have to remember uh, as well that the knowledge gap has had some very real and harmful consequences for real people on both sides of the Irish Sea. Right, and it became impossible to ignore with the result of the UK election. So the result meant that the Conservatives decided to ask the Northern Irish uh, Party, the Democratic Unionist Party, to enter government with them or to support them. And that sent people, you know, flying around to try and find out who the DUP are. Uh, you know, they were just not a well-known thing, particularly in England, even though they're the, the biggest pro-British party in Northern Ireland and they've been in power you know for ages um, mm. so I spoke to one academic John Ton who wrote a book about the DUP nobody was interested until uh, his phone just started ringing off the hook <laughs> with the result of the election 
I'm quite interested in the fact that you must have been in huge demand over the last few days. Yeah. Is it curious that the DUP had to be explained? Yeah, it's a strange thing because we, we, we published the book in 2014 um, and there was a lot of interest in it in, in Northern Ireland and it was serialised for a few days by the Belfast Telegraph over there. But on this side of the water, there was little interest. No one really knew or cared about the DUP. And then you know, on election night, once the political arithmetic was beginning to stack up, suddenly it became clear that the DUP were the only people who could get the Conservatives over the line and everything changed. Um, the DUP apparently was the most searched item in the whole of the internet in the world um, no. for a while. The DUP's website crashed. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and yeah, everyone was fixated. People were going, what? These people don't believe in same-sex marriage. These people are so against abortion. Well, you know, welcome to Northern Ireland. Do you find that the level of um, lack of knowledge about Northern Ireland in general uh, is remarkable at all in Britain? No one ever cares about Northern Ireland. Well, that's not true. Not, not nowhere. But far too few people care about Northern Ireland on this side of, of the water in, in England. Uh, that was a problem throughout the conflict. I mean, you had three decades of this horrible, grisly conflict on England's doorstep, and yet very few people cared you know, a, lot of, a, a lot of places in England are utterly ignorant um, about um, Northern Ireland and its politics. You know, people scrambling around to find out who the DUP are. I mean, the DUP have been around for a long time. They've been, they've been around since 1971. And, um, you know, the level of ignorance is, is, is something else. Um, I, I sense the backlash from Northern Ireland. People are very irritated at the moment with English people uh, and their lack of knowledge about the DUP, but it, it, it didn't really come as a, as a surprise. Another issue that has been directly affected by the knowledge gap is abortion access, of course, which is a truly cross-border issue. Uh, it affects the Republic uh, with the restrictive Eighth Amendment, which is being hotly debated right now. Um, it affects Northern Ireland, uh, since Northern Ireland isn't covered by UK abortion legislation. And it affects the rest of the UK, because thousands of women travel to England and Wales from the island of Ireland, both parts, um, to ac- access abortion every year. Uh, according to the Irish Family Planning Association, over 3,000 women and girls gave Irish addresses in UK abortion services last year. I spoke to Caitlin DeJode yesterday. She's an activist for the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, originally from Northern Ireland. And I asked her how she felt when the wider UK last week uh, suddenly seemed to wake up to the fact that abortion was illegal in a whole constituent part of their country. Just like John Tonge, she said that she was being flooded with questions about who are the DUP, what is this party, and what do they plan to do? Personally, she said that she found the lack of awareness to be quite shocking. They, they, they were sort of under the spotlight for the first time, even though none of their positions on things like um, abortion and gay marriage and even climate change are secret. You know, we've known about them for, for years and been campaigning against them. The situation of abortion rights in Northern Ireland, Caitlin told me, suffered from its own knowledge gap. People either thought that it was affected by the Eighth Amendment, which restricts abortion in the Republic of Ireland, or that it was covered by the same abortion laws as the rest of the UK. But in actual fact, Northern Ireland actually has its own peculiar abortion legislation, dating from the 19th century actually, and contrary to what many in the UK seem to believe, the restrictions there are not a Catholic phenomenon, as they are in the Republic of Ireland, uh, but are actually backed by Protestant evangelical movements, uh, particularly uh, within the Unionist DUP party, uh, which has, of course, just stepped closer to power over the entire UK. So the legislation that regulates abortion is actually the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. To give you an idea of how outdated this legislation is, it was used to prosecute Oscar Wilde for sodomy charges back in 1895. Essentially, a virtual blanket ban. When Northern Irish women travel to England for abortion, uh, they're not covered by the NHS, um, which I think is something that's so shocking and so few people actually know about. The DUP are incredibly hardline in their stance on abortion, whilst the SCLP and Sinn Féin have also not moved to sort of support the sort of calls for full decriminalisation. And it's the DUP who've been most outspoken in blocking any attempts to soften the legislation in the North. Siobhan Fenton also talked about this. Uh, she, she said that the sudden spike in interest where there had been none before had been a frustrating experience for both abortion rights campaigners and members of the LGBT community. So Northern Ireland, of course, unlike the Republic of Ireland or England, Scotland and Wales in the UK, has uh, no legal recognition for a same-sex marriage. But it seemed to Siobhan like nobody cared about that until it looked like those policies might affect the rest of the UK. It, it was slightly 
sister Lena, I think, saying that um, English people or English feminists suddenly cared about Northern Ireland's abortion laws whenever there was a possibility that they might see, you know, a slight reduction in term limits, for instance, for DP vote uh, vote at Westminster, which would obviously be very worrying. But I mean, there are women in Northern Ireland right now here awaiting trial for committing an abortion and they're um, facing life imprisonment. We had a woman last year who was put on trial for having an abortion and found guilty and people across the water, as they call them, um, didn't care, unfortunately. And, you know, it was okay that it happened to, to Northern Irish people, but, you know, there, there are English people at stake now where um, same-sex couples still can't get married and um, MPs and lots of even activist groups in England didn't really seem to be aware of that. So somewhat out of sight and out of mind overall. You know, I found it interesting when Siobhan described her shock at discovering that people didn't realise Northern Ireland is part of the UK. I certainly found when I lived in England that there was confusion about this, but also a lack of awareness that Ireland is an independent country. And that includes among people with highly paid jobs who should really know better. There's a classic example of this. It came from uh, the UK's Minister for Brexit, David Davis. Let's listen to what he had to say on Sky News' Murnaghan programme. He was being asked, not long after the Brexit referendum, if there was any way Scotland could somehow have an exception and remain in the EU. Here's what he had to say. I mean, do you think there is a way? We heard Nicola Sturgeon talking today on the Mars show. Nicola Sturgeon still believes there might be some kind of way, she's leaving it very vague, that Scotland could stay in the European no, Union I, and, and, and perhaps not that, leave the UK. I don't think that works. Um, I mean, one of, one of our really not di- um, challenging issues to deal with will be the internal border we have with Southern Ireland. And we're not going to go about creating other internal borders inside the United Kingdom. But Wow. Did you catch that, listeners? He, he seems to be under the impression that the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland is an internal UK border. Let's hear it again. The internal border we have with Southern Ireland. Now, please tell me, what is this Southern Ireland that you speak of, David Davis? Anyway, I found this confusion over this to be something I encountered pretty often, unfortunately, when I lived in England. And sometimes it's indirect. Like, for example, people might do a double take when you say that Ireland doesn't use the pound sterling, for example. Oh, yeah, I recognize that that double take look, definitely. Actually, I I think it was only when I moved abroad that I realized how weird this actually is, you know. I had always kind of presumed, yeah, sure, you know, Ireland is small. It's a small island. It's got a small population. Um, That is just to be expected that people in the UK wouldn't know about its sovereignty. But actually... When you think about it, it really is pretty odd. I mean, if people in the UK don't know whether Ireland is part of the UK or not, that means they don't know the borders of their own country, and that's highly unusual, right? Yeah, right. If you um, accept that, that, you know, this fuzziness also applies to Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, you know, it's, it is unusual. Um, and it's not like the UK is enormous and, like, really hard <laughs> to keep track of the bits of it, like... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen all these like YouTube videos, you know, these kind of uh, geography explanations, um, which aim to like demystify how complicated this whole situation is. But, you know, like it really isn't that complicated. There are only two sovereign states involved, uh, the UK and the Republic of Ireland, and there's one single border between them. Like you mentioned just before we heard Siobhan speak there, this is all the more baffling because of that 30-year war that waged on UK territory. And it wasn't just in Northern Ireland either. We have to remember that this war's violence often caused huge death and destruction on English and Scottish and Welsh soil. Do you think it's a generational thing, Tim? Like, is it the people who've become adults in a period when Northern Ireland was mostly peaceful, that it's kind of, it's not really a thing for them, it's dropped out of their consciousness, but maybe their parents were aware? Well, not really. I mean, knowledge of that conflict was pretty poor all the time. And and this certainly is not a new thing, this knowledge gap. In fact, it's been um, quite a consistent background factor in the history of the Irish Republic. Uh, You know, and we, we have to remember that a whole lot of people never wanted the Irish Republic to exist. And a lot of people just refused to acknowledge it, you know? So in some ways, we could say that the knowledge gap on Ireland was actually quite deliberate. Really? Why? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, it was all part and parcel of the mind games that characterised a lot of the Irish independence movement uh, on both sides. So, So the Irish Republicans declared themselves independent from Britain, actually long before Britain ever acknowledged that fact. So if you ask a lot of people, they would consider Ireland's real independence date as dating back to the 1916 Rising, when they declared the Republic at the GPO. Oh, okay. So perhaps like there wasn't this one year where everybody remembered a huge event that was a big rupture and, 
from that on point on it was different. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's also worth remembering that when independence was signed into law in 1922, it was pretty ambiguous. Originally, it created an Irish free state. So that's not the same thing, actually, as an independent republic. Uh, huh. It's it's more like what Australia or Canada uh, have now. So it had governmental independence from the UK, but it was still considered part of the empire and the Commonwealth. And the government, um, controversially, still had to swear allegiance to the British monarch. Right. Yeah. And because of this, a, a good half of the Irish rebel movement actually didn't really recognize the Irish Free State for ages. Uh, and this put the country in a really vague place. Tim, tell us about the Sneaky Republic. I love this story. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I love telling the story. My students actually uh, like this one too, because it's such a sneaky move. Uh, so the Irish Taoiseach and Easter Rising veteran, uh, Eamon de Valera, had been plotting to kind of throw England out of the Irish Free State uh, by the back door. Uh, so in 1936, uh, the British king, uh, Edward VIII, he, he famously abdicated uh, so that he could marry an American divorcee, uh, Wallace Simpson. Uh-huh. You know the story. Like it was a massive scandal at the time. And the whole monarchy was in a total crisis. You might remember that was the subject of the recent film, The King's Speech. Uh, So the whole thing was so unusual when it happened that there was no real good protocol. And every country in the Commonwealth, which of course included the Irish Free State, was required to ratify the King's abdication. It's worth knowing here that de Valera is like the ultimate Machiavellian. He's like a Bond (laughs) villain, you know, like kind of people love him or hate him, but you wouldn't want to be up against him, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. So this was like his dream opportunity, right? Right. And uh, d- during just this moment when there was essentially no agreed king, Eamon de Valera ran into the government in the middle of the night, um, acting as a kind of de facto monarch. And he drew up a whole new constitution, w- wherein he removed all mention of the monarchy, the Commonwealth, or the UK governor general uh, from, from Irish law. Okay, so like in the absence of a king for like one night, he acted it with extreme power himself to boot out any future king. And I mean... you. Whether that power was uh, legally uh, justified or not is is a matter of debate. Uh, But the fact was that nobody had ratified uh, the new king in the Commonwealth. uh, So it wasn't really official uh, while he did this. When everyone woke up the next day, he released this document to the horror of the UK public, uh, basically declaring total independence. So there was no Irish Free State anymore. Uh, There was just a republic, which de Valera had renamed uh, ERA, uh, of course, which a lot of people still use that word. It means just Ireland in Irish. Okay. Uh, the go- yeah, so, so the governor general, um, who represented the king and the Commonwealth, uh, was sent home and his house was turned into the Irish president's residence, or Sanuthron. So this was very much the tone uh, between the UK and Ireland for much of the 20th century, kind of, you know, bitter, bitchy politics on both sides. Just after 1922, when the Free State was enacted, for instance, uh, the new government had this um, massive statue of Queen Victoria removed from Leinster House in Dublin, which is the current government. Uh, they took it out with a crane and then they gave it as a gift to Australia <laughs> as, <What>? a kind of <laughs> as a diplomatic gesture. And it was, I mean, it was a total two fingers to the UK and to the Commonwealth. You know, they were saying to this um, other Commonwealth country, basically, here, you might want this. You know, yeah. we're not like you. Like, take this old queen statue. Like, it's not for us. Big time. Uh, James Joyce describes the statue, actually, as the old bitch. okay and i understand in these early days the irish state was issuing passports um, but they might not consistently be accepted by british border officials so they might just you know confiscate them people had to get both british and irish passports just to have one spare to be safe and it really wound people up so in 1937 can we consider that the date that ireland became a republic well, this is an, another vague spot, right? Because that's the day when de Valera considered Ireland to be a republic. <laughs> but, that, you know, that doesn't mean much uh, to his counterparts across the water. Um, so they didn't actually uh, recognise this in the UK until 1949, when the British king and the Irish president finally signed the uh, Republic of Ireland Act, which took the country out of the Commonwealth totally. Okay. Yeah, Ireland is not in the Commonwealth anymore. So it's actually more politically removed from the UK than countries like Australia or South Africa. Yes, and it's hard to imagine it being in the Commonwealth, to be honest, because a lot of Commonwealth events involve like from (laughs) a lot of pageantry (laughs) before the Queen, as far as, you know, I can see. Anyway, uh, so right up until 1949, uh, the the UK, I can see, it wasn't going to come out and like declare to the rest of the world, like, whoops, we lost a constituent country you know it kind of preferred to keep the whole thing a little bit ambiguous it made it kind of easy to ignore Ireland's independence like you say there wasn't one big breakaway date but what I find fascinating actually is how the changes to the UK's status also kind of went under the radar I mean the name of 
of the United Kingdom changed in 1922. It changed from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland to Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You know, so the passports would have changed their text. Right. An entire, an entire home country had seceded. Yeah, like loads of territory, like a massive miles amount of, of territory. Indeed. Uh, and, and culturally, you know, this is really significant, very much uh, similar to if Scotland um, declared independence today. Uh, so it's difficult to understand how people seem to have totally missed this fact. Huh. You know, loads of Irish people I spoke to have these anecdotes about the moments when they realise that people from the UK just do not have the same history of them. They haven't learned the same history. And mm. for me, it was when I first arrived in England when I did my master's. So on the first night when I was out for a drink with my new classmates, I went up to buy a round. And when I got back, one of them said, well, thanks, Naomi. We were just debating whether we should bring back Cromwell. Oh, my God. Yeah, I take it that my face was like the perfect punchline because everybody fell about <laughs> laughing. Um, but they were also surprised. Like, they, they didn't do it as a joke on me. They just didn't think that Cromwell was a non-neutral figure. So I discovered that uh, it, while in Ireland, Cromwell is remembered in the popular imagination as like an evil mass murderer. In the UK, he has a totally different reputation. You know, like his role in the colonization of Ireland is kind of incidental. And he's remembered more of as a political leader who was important in the history of the British Parliament. Yeah, sure. Right. And, and I mean, like in Ireland, uh, you know, Cromwell's name is literally a curse. You can actually say, may the curse of Cromwell be on you. And it's, it's a pretty you know, insulting curse. Right. So there we see the depth of the difference that there can be. Mm. Um, so I decided for this episode to get to the bottom of it by sitting down and doing a comparative investigation of the UK and Irish history courses. Yes, listeners, I have done that service for you. <laughs> so are you ready to hear it? Go for it. And I haven't heard this yet, so I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So this is a history where the nations are intimately bound up together. You know, you, you can't really learn one without the other. Because it's our national story, you know, it's why Ireland exists, it makes sense that the Irish history syllabus dedicates a large section, uh, you know, of study to the emergence of the nation. For sure, yeah. But the way it's taught in Britain is very different. So uh, uh -huh. let's just start with some overall history statistics. Okay, so Tim, if you had to guess, what percentage of students in the UK would you say study history until about the age of 15? Until 15? Mm. Uh, let me think. I suppose most people. So what, like um, 70, 70%? Okay, so it's around 40%. So okay. that's going by the number of people who do history GCSEs, which are like the exams that you take when you're about 15 or 16 in school. Uh -huh. Okay, so to compare, the most commonly taken subject is maths, which is about 92% of people. Mm -hmm. um, and what would you say it is in Ireland, the percentage who do history at about that age? Until they're 15. Um, oh, I, w I would probably say everyone, right? Yes, you're right. In Ireland, it's nearly everybody. It's not a compulsory subject, but in practice, almost everybody does history for their junior certificate. It's about 90%. Okay, so if we look at what that actually means, that basically means that almost everyone who goes through school in Ireland will learn for three years the history of Ireland from prehistoric times, through the plantations, through the story of how Ireland came to be a nation state, you know, up until about the 1980s-ish. Right. So clearly, you know, all the students in Irish schools, they're not just studying Irish history, they do European history. So they do, you know, the Renaissance, the French Revolution and world wars, and they mm -hmm. do like American independence and civil wars. And you get a, a, a fair whack of British history in there as well, because the history of Britain is very much embedded in the whole history of Ireland and Irish independence, mm -hmm. and of course, sure. in the world wars as well. So you do kind of skip over the long lists of kings that I know to be a thing in UK. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, sure. they can kind of reel off lists of kings. Anyway, let's get to the final high school exam. So the people who do a full A level, you know, when they're about 17 in history, that's roughly the same as the number who do Irish Leaving Cert history. It's around 15%. But I took a look at those courses. So I actually got books. I acquired school books and I have them in front of me. I bought mm -hmm. a textbook off Amazon, Tim. Well, well done, Amy. I did. Right. So, Invested. okay, let's look at the Irish one. So when you go into that Leaving Certificate exam in June, when you sit down there, a full 50% of the marks that you can get are about Irish history. So just to give you an idea of the history that these Irish students are learning, I have just one textbook here in front of me. So this one's called The Pursuit of Sovereignty and the Impact of Partition 1912 to 1949. It's about 250 pages long. And it goes bit by bit by bit from home rule to the Easter Rising to the War for Independence to the early years of Northern Ireland and so on. 
Oh, I'm with you. Okay, so now if you look at the A-levels in the UK, they're really different, okay? So in A-level courses, right, the whole system is a bit different. The courses and the books can differ from school to school because different private companies create the courses and the examinations in accordance with guidelines, right. which are set by the education ministry, okay? okay. So it's, it's overseen by the state, but it's a lot more privatized than it is mm -hmm. in Ireland. Okay, so I looked up just one course in depth to get an idea. This is called the AQA history course. Um, okay. I find it very interesting to look at. Th these are my observations. Okay, so as you would expect, British history, so all those kings and Tudors and Stuarts and industrialization and all of that, they're, they're the founding mm -hmm. block, which is, which is understandable. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Now, there isn't really a category that's called European history, like there is in the Irish course. Well, oh. I find this very interesting because the European Union is another thing about which there is a big knowledge gap. Um, so the, the focus tends to be country to country. So you can study Germany by itself from 1871 to 1991. And oh. you can study the French Revolutionary period and you can study fascism in Italy. All these things are separate, you know. OK, There's so a different approach. Different approach. There's quite a lot of Russia. Uh, you can do a bit of America. You can do a bit of China. You can do the Cold War oh, and stuff. Okay. It's really right. very flexible in terms of what you can pick from all of this. So you can go from quite deep okay. and, uh, you yeah. know, just study a few things if you want to in quite a lot of depth. I wouldn't mind that. So where is Ireland? Did you notice Ireland? Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Because it's neither in the UK nor one of those options. Is that it? It's tucked away. Now, if you were to study Ireland, if you were to choose the tracks in which Ireland features, I had a look at where it comes up. Okay, I did a review. Okay, okay. so it mm -hmm. appears within this module. It's called Challenge and Transformation, Britain, 1851 to 1964. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Ireland appears in the transformation of Britain from the mid 19th century. Yeah. Okay. So about one sixth of that course actually deals with Ireland, right? Here, here's another one, right? You can take this uh, this module if you want. It's called the British Empire, 1857 to 1967. Okay. Well, this makes a bit more sense, right? There's no Ireland in there. Ah. <laughs> Oh, this explains so much, Naomi. Right, there's no Ireland. Okay, so now the only <laughs> other place among all the lists of loads of different options you could take, the only other place I could find Ireland was tucked away into, are you ready? Wars and Welfare, Britain in Transition, 1906 to 1957. <laughs> okay, all right. So this, this has, uh, this has uh, opened uh, our eyes a bit, I suppose, uh, to, to why people mightn't know anything about this. Okay, so yeah, and even in that, it's really tucked away, okay? So do you know where you find in Irish independence in there? It's under the heading, like a subcategory, which is called The Impact of War, 1914 to 1922. It's it's under the First World War. Yeah, the impact of war. Yeah. And this is, let's just remind our listeners, this is like, I suppose, a third of the United Kingdom seceding and breaking away. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, the impact of war includes all sorts of crap right down at the end underneath all these things. There's a little line which says, Ireland, the Easter Rising, the War of Independence and the Anglo-Irish Treaty. This, I suppose this is, I mean, this has to be written by historians. Um. We'll get to that, okay? So we'll get okay. to the mechanics of the history course in a minute, okay? okay cool. But if you look at this, right, the, the knowledge gap is kind of to be expected, really, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, these things are, they're kind of unintentional framings, you know, that don't really give you a sense of Ireland as a nation with its own history that kind of existed with a sense of itself as a distinct unit over a very, very long period of time. You don't really mm -hmm. get that. Yeah, right, definitely. But there are other aspects that are actually more controversial. Hold on, more controversial than this. Yeah. So wait, wait, I'm going to play you a clip now, which is from, it's from another A-level history course. Okay, not not the same one, but it's a, okay. it's a real textbook. It's by Edexcel, which is mm -hmm. part of the big educational company Pearson. Okay, so Pearson used to own the Financial Times and The Economist, but they sold them a couple of years ago. Okay. okay. Here's from Pearson Edexcel textbook. Mm -hmm. It's called British Political History 1945 to 90, Consensus and Conflict. And it's by a man called Jeff Stewart. Let's hear the first okay. clip. This is about the Falklands War. Margaret Thatcher rose magnificently to the challenge. The risks were enormous, with a very real chance of military disaster. She gave the go-ahead. She was determined to restore the islands to British control. It was vital that aggression be defeated for the sake of British self-respect and the rule of law in the world. In these feelings, the Prime Minister seemed to have articulated the response of the majority of her compatriots. Galtieri couldn't be allowed to get away with it. It was a simple case of right and wrong. Oh my God. 
Well, my 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 mouth actually just fell open there. This is about the Falklands, though. It's not about Ireland. No, that's about the Falklands, all right. But just an example, all right. So a bit of a bit of a fan of Margaret Thatcher, wouldn't you say? I. <laughs> it was a simple case of right and wrong. I mean, I'm. I hope this this man doesn't have a degree in history. Okay. Well, let's hear the second clip. Now, this is about the Mays Prison. So the Mays Prison is a bit of a notorious prison from the time of the conflict in Northern Ireland. It grew out of a time when the British government was using internment. So that basically means the large-scale imprisonment of big groups of people without trial. And the policy was used to sweep up large numbers of people who were overwhelmingly Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. And the justification was that they might be involved in terrorism. Anyway, the Mays Prison uh, became internationally famous when Republicans began to do hunger strikes in the early 1980s. They were striking because they wanted to be recognized as political prisoners, not criminals. So here's what the textbook says to say about that whole episode. The maze was in every respect a model prison, conforming to all aspects of the Charter of Human Rights. Yet the IRA denounced it as a British death camp. This was total nonsense, but the power of propaganda convinced many of the Catholic community in both the Irish Republic and within the Irish community in the USA that this was a scene of a modern atrocity. When Bobby Sands starved himself to death in May 1981, there was outrage, yet Thatcher was rightly unmoved. It was self-inflicted and totally unjustified by any objective criteria, but it took moral courage to say so and accept other deaths. Once again, this was a display of moral courage and determination on the Prime Minister's part. Wow. That is that is way beyond what I thought might be possible. Honestly, that is something else. I mean, for our listeners, uh, just to give you an idea, uh, in the maze, uh, one of the protests was uh, was a dirty protest. Um, this is where um, prisoners were afraid of being attacked by prison officers uh, because when they left their cells to use the toilet. And as part of the wider protest for uh, recognition of their political status, uh, they refused to leave their cells and therefore were smearing their excrement all over the walls, um, not wearing any clothes, and the only objects in their cell were uh, a bare mattress and a blanket. This is what he's calling model prison. Okay, so needless to say, this is clearly one specific viewpoint, right? But it masquerades as an impartial account, right? This is in the narrative Mm. text of the history book. It's not like a boxed off separate opinion that students are asked to analyze. It's presented as though these are the simple, undisputed facts. It's a problem. This is, I mean, it's actually frightening. Uh, you know, I'm a historian and I'm a lecturer and I know well how powerful this is because, you know, the things you say to young people about history totally shapes their mind and outlook. You know, my students, you know, can't help themselves but repeat back sometimes my opinions to me as fact. You know, so it's really, you have to be really, really careful um, of what you say and try and keep reminding them all the time of the objectivity um, in history. And because once they've learned this when they're young, it's, it's very hard to, as it were, reprogram them again you know i'm sure our listeners will empathize with this you know imagine trying to just re reconstruct the history that you know already a history becomes part of of who you are this is at the very least highly irresponsible okay now i fairly hounded pearson for comment about this all right i wanted to know above all who is jeff stewart the author because i had Mm. a suspicion i tried to find out about him online you know and it was weirdly there was weirdly little record so i had a a suspicion that he might be like michael gove or somebody (laughs) right so according to to pearson jeff stewart is not a pseudonym uh, he was a history teacher um, and he also helped to design the exams for their history course uh, for, oh. for a long while. He was a senior examiner as well as writing this book. Well, I hope the students praise Margaret Thatcher for their sakes. OK, um, I asked if we could interview Jess Stewart and Pearson said that they uh, passed on this request, but I didn't hear back. So if you're listening, Mr. Stewart, we would love to have you on as a guest. We would love to have you on as a guest. Uh, so um, Pearson also told me that this book has already been phased out because the history course was up. Updated. So it was in place between 2008, they told me, and up until 2015, they were selling about 1,500 copies every year. Wow. I want to uh, give credit to uh, Henry Stewart, right, uh, who actually brought this to light first. He was blogging about it on the local schools network. Uh, he mm-hmm. noticed uh, this these passages of text because his son was taking an AS uh, history course and he felt it was biased. <laughs> well, imagine that. All right. So, Tim, do you want to uh, read the statement Pearson gave us? OK, you've just sent me this by email, so I haven't read it before. Uh, right. So uh, Pearson say, quote, 
We follow a clear process to produce content and all our subject specialists are highly qualified. We check our content and engage with teachers and subject specialists before we go to print. Our books go through a rigorous quality control <coughs> uh, <laughs> process, including review by subject experts. For some reason, I'm doubting this, Pearson. Sorry, I'll go back to the quote. Um, a review by subject experts and teachers, as well as separate fact-checking and editorial checks. End quote. Well, I suppose, I mean, we can only, we can only take them by their word, uh, but we might advise Pearson to maybe check out some new fact-checkers. Yeah, m- improve the system, it seems like. Okay, well, let's move on from that anyway, and we'll leave it to our listeners to see if they have any uh, additional information. This is, uh, we're starting to get into investigative journalism there, Naomi, a little That's bit. That's what we want, yeah. <laughs> All right, but uh, if you have any information, actually, or if you've studied that history syllabus, we'd actually love to hear from you. Since the UK has such a loud voice on the international stage, uh, we have to recognise as well that some of this kind of lack of awareness or, or this, you know, kind of a maybe inadvertent ignorance tends to become received opinion. Um, something that always kind of stuck out to me was the use of the term British Isles um, to include Ireland, you know, for instance. Uh, people in the Republic of Ireland are often surprised uh, to hear this being used because it isn't used very much in Ireland. It isn't recognised uh, by the Irish government. Like, it's highly problematic, really. Out of the two states, within the so-called British Isles, one of them doesn't recognize the term, you know? Um, So I don't know if it's uh, uh, possible to use this with, you know, good conscience. But if you go to the Wikipedia page of the British Isles, for instance, uh, which I have open here in front of me, this fact isn't mentioned. The fact that one of the countries within them doesn't recognize the term isn't mentioned until the fourth paragraph, where it says, I quote, the term British Isles is controversial in Ireland. And then later on, the government of Ireland does not recognize or use the term. You know, this is... Um, this I, is I'm taking that this is a particular bugbear of yours, Tim. It's a particular bugbear of mine. I'll tell you why, because I tried to change it immediately. All I wanted to do was put that fact in the first paragraph, that the government of Ireland does not recognize or use the term, which I think is fair. Uh, but the moderator is very active and <laughs> changed it back <laughs> within like 20 seconds, about three times, and then he told me to stop. Wikipedia so. <laughs> wars. So I left that one alone. Um, but like, you know, that that almost seems to me that in the hands of some people that this knowledge gap is contrived. It's kind of contrived, you know? It's a, it's a way of culturally dominating the Republic, uh, you know, on an international level. Have you noticed this playing out in the international sphere? Yeah, for sure. Like in France, um, where I live again, uh, a lot of people just presume that Ireland is part of the UK and, and you can't really blame them uh, because the UK overwhelmingly dominates the international narrative on this. So when popular culture or media discussion in the UK just lumps uh, the Republic of Ireland in with the UK all the time, it becomes a kind of undercurrent that the independent state of Ireland doesn't exist. It's, you know, it's a really powerful effect. You know, I was just telling someone last week here in Paris about the podcast and, you know, he he flat out refused to believe that the Republic of Ireland was an independent country. We must say that, you know, it is a plight that does affect smaller countries, especially when they speak the same language as a big country that's right beside them. And I do think that Ireland does quite well in terms of having a strong international brand, if you could call it that, you know. Sure, good point. I mean, uh, actually, lots of Canadians I know uh, tell me that they have a similar problem in Canada. It's, it's, you know, massive um, that people just uh, somehow, uh, it's hard to imagine, but that people uh, consider it as part of the United States. Mm. But at the end of the day, if people in the UK are unsure whether they have sovereign control over Ireland, how can we expect anyone else around the world to know? You know, I think it might be changing with Brexit. So, mm-hmm. okay, this is what I've noticed. Okay, so it forces the UK and Ireland onto opposite sides of a negotiating table in a huge international process, right? So Ireland is with the rest of the EU and the UK is on the other side. Now, Mm. in the lead up to those negotiations, the Irish government made an incredibly intense diplomatic effort just before the negotiations took place. uh, They sent delegations to every single other EU country, sometimes several times, to highlight what they call Ireland's unique challenges with Brexit. So what that essentially means is that just making sure the leadership of every country knows that Ireland is a distinct country, that it can't be lumped in with the UK, it can't be assumed it's just going to follow the UK and whatever the UK decides to do, and that it's a very committed EU member with among the highest levels of public support for the EU in the whole bloc. 
And of course, making sure that all the countries know that there's a border, a sensitive border, one that could be affected and, you know, what it is and what Northern Ireland is. So that's really explaining the whole case on an international scale. And this is, of course, the subject of our first podcast, right? Yes. And that's not a coincidence. I have to confess that the knowledge gap uh, was why I wanted to make this podcast series to begin with. I just felt that there was a real information gap about Ireland and its history at a time when it was becoming hugely politically important. And also that we're kind of at a unique moment in terms of people being interested in finding out more about it, uh, not least among the tens of thousands of people who have decided to claim uh, Irish citizenship in the wake of Brexit. Welcome to any of you who might be listening, by the way. Uh, the name of this podcast was inspired by those people, and we hope it will be a resource for everybody who wants to discover or rediscover Ireland with an open mind. Absolutely. So all in all, Tim, what's your conclusion about the knowledge gap? Well, like you said, uh, Naomi, it looks like it's actually kind of um, at an open ending right now. The knowledge gap seems to have led UK voters to walk quite blindly into a border crisis uh, that's to come. Mm. And it doesn't look like there'll be any easy way around this. Uh, it's also led to a situation where the future of Northern Ireland in the Union has come into question. So I don't think we're going to hear the end of this anytime soon. Yeah, it's of course, you know, the absence of Northern Ireland in the Brexit debate was crazy. And it's nothing unusual. It's like that with like all election campaigns. Anyway, I think that one thing that can definitely be said uh, you know probably for the first time in earnest is that the knowledge gap and the dangers that it presents it's being acknowledged you know Mm. by people on both sides of the Irish Sea Um, so do you think that things will change now that the UK public has had something of a rude awakening to this whole thing honestly things really could change but it's anyone's guess how so let's keep a close eye on it yeah and if you have any questions you know just fire them at us it's lovely that you know if anyone wants to learn and increase their knowledge and we'll try and help whatever whatever way we can and we really want to thank all of our UK guests for being so candid about all of this and once again we need to stress that you know we, we don't want to point blame at anyone in particular you know it's a kind of a, it's a phenomenon it's not really anybody's fault you know but it just continues to have pretty momentous effects on people's lives absolutely so um, thanks again to everyone Naomi what are we going to be talking about next week okay you thought we were controversial in this episode <laughs> just wait for this next one <laughs> I'll do my sound again will I yeah dun, dun, dun. oh it's the Catholic Church we couldn't avoid it anymore yeah for the for the next episode we'll be speaking to the amazing Catherine Corliss Uh, who has become a beacon for many survivors of abuse in Catholic institutions. What really kept me going was was the silence of people who should be helping. I should be giving me answers. I was being fobbed off the whole time. It it, it was just as if things had never changed from the 1940s and 50s. These are illegitimate children. And uh, I mean to say it was kind of so what? It it just drove me to, um, to find justice for them. Our interview with her is really something else. So I really urge you to tune in for that one. We'll also be talking to journalists and doctors about the recent National Maternity Hospital scandal, which saw protests against the new National Maternity Hospital being given over to an order of nuns. For now, thanks for listening. You can send your questions and comments, as usual, to us via email at theirishpassport at gmail.com. And you can always get us on our website on all the relevant links, www.theirishpassport.com. We're on Twitter at, at @passportirish, and we have a Facebook page. Make sure to share, rate and review the podcast on social media and iTunes it makes all the difference to us it really does and thanks so much for joining us